comes all the way from an office in Middlebrook, but more recently from uh, Mississippi. And uh, yeah, give it up, a huge YU welcome to Dr. Jared Pack! You, you want to use yeah. ah, I'll probably be okay here. Good morning, y'all. It's good to see everyone, and it's good to be here. Uh, over the last few weeks, we've been doing a number of things that Dr. Dehart and YU Better Together have been working on to really bring our attention to February as Black History Month. And today is another one of those exciting days. I feel really loud up there, Sean. I don't know if I feel really loud to y'all, but it's really loud to me. Okay. Generally, I don't even need this thing. Um, but we've been talking about Black History Month and celebrating that in a number of ways. And today is an exciting day in that because tonight in the cafe it is going to be Soul Food Night. And Chef Alexis is working hard on that. And I was talking about the menu with him the other day. And y'all, I'm pumped for it. It's going to be a good night to eat in the calf. And we all know that we can't always say that. But tonight is going to be a real good night in the calf. So make plans to be there tonight. But before we really dive into the fried chicken and greens and baked mac and cheese and sweet potatoes with marshmallows on it and all the other things that are on the menu for tonight, I want us to think a little bit about where this food comes from, right? Food is more than just something we eat. The great, the late chef and food writer Anthony Bourdain famously says, food is everything that we are. It's an extension of nationalist feeling, ethnic feeling, your personal history, your province, your tribe, your grandma. It's inseparable from these from the get-go. And nothing really illustrates this and the truth of this quite like soul food. With its immense power to speak to the deep heritage of flavors and foods of the past. And conjure up within us with a single bite the warmth of home. Or maybe that's just me. Because I've seen some of y'all. And I am confident that some of y'all in here do not get all warm and fuzzy over a bowl of grits. Or stop to just admire the beauty of a piece of hot and fresh fried chicken coming out of a cast iron skillet. I've seen y'all, it just ain't how you roll. Me, on the other hand, well, I do a lot of things for good grits, including some questionable ones. But this food today that we know is soul food has a deep and rich history. One that doesn't start in the 1960s when the term soul food first comes into vogue. No, the history of soul food runs much farther back than that. In fact, its origins can be traced back hundreds of years and on multiple continents to a complex Atlantic world environment where distinct cultures met and adapted and thrived, even while other cultures tried to kill them out. You know, see, beginning in 1492, the advent of Christopher Columbus into the American into the Americas broadly defined, launches a period of global exchange that we call the Columbian Exchange. And this Columbian Exchange was this massive transfer of diseases and goods and plants and crops and animals and people and ideas 
between the eastern and western hemispheres within this big, integrated, complex Atlantic world. This exchange of peoples, plants, animals, germs, cultures from Europe, Africa, and the Americas has never happened before or since in either the speed or volume that it happens in all of global history like it does in this period in the 15 and 1600s. But as part of this Colombian exchange was the launch of what we call the triangular trade, which you see on the screen behind me. It's this three-way trade across the Atlantic world in which commodities are being traded between Europe and Africa and the Americas. One part of that trade that we call the Middle Passage was the trade of slaves from Africa into the Americas. But this transatlantic slave trade that began in the 16th century sparked what we call the African diaspora. The dispersal of African peoples and their descendants which creates new and unique societies in its wake. Characterized by a beautiful degree of cultural syncretism. You see, enslaved Africans did not enjoy the luxury of maintaining their cultural, their inherited cultural traditions when they arrived in the Western Hemisphere. They often preserved African traditions, including languages and religions, but not wholesale. They instead adapted them to societies compounded of various European elements. In adapting to new circumstances, slaves constructed distinctive African-American cultural traditions. And there's a big difference there. Because the very idea of African-American culture brings with it this reflection that it takes parts of the African societies they were forcibly removed from and blends them with the Americas they encounter into something that is neither African nor American, but beautifully new and blended in the process. These African traditions made their effects felt throughout much of the Western Hemisphere. As slaves introduced African foods to Caribbean and American societies and helped give rise to distinctive hybrid cuisines. Certainly not all of the crops that grew well in Africa would grow well in the Americas. But some crops could survive. And the ones that did, crops like okra and watermelon and black-eyed peas, would soon become staples of African-American food traditions. In fact, we have evidence of watermelon-like fruits being depicted in drawings going all the way back to the ancient Egyptians. One of those great foods that came across from Africa. Slave communities also took the foods that they were familiar with and merged them into different things. Slaves combined African okra, for example, with European-style sautéed vegetables and American shellfish to produce magnificent gumbos, which found their way to Euro-American as well as African-American tables. And those African heritages are still preserved today. In fact, okra and gumbo are both English transliterations of African words. 
Okra was first used in the 1670s in colonial Virginia. And it's derived from the Igbo word okuru. A language, Igbo was a language that is spoken in what is today Nigeria. Gumbo comes from several possible Bantu words. We're not completely sure which of those words it might be, whether it's Ochingombo or Kingombo, but there are two different Bantu words that both speak of these types of stewed dishes that we get the word gumbo from today. These are both two classic examples of ways in which African slaves transform the food landscape of the Americas. But in this world in which African slaves brought their food cultures with them and created both traditional dishes and new African-American hybrid creations, few enslaved individuals wielded as much power as the slave cooks. These enslaved cooks received specialized training and possessed skills that distinguished them from other slaves. In many cases, enslaved cooks controlled the fate of their mistresses, particularly within the world of colonial and early American high society. The quality of food served at a dinner party, luncheon, or tea would reflect upon the mistress who, of course, took all the credit for the work done by her enslaved cook. This relationship between enslaved cooks and mistresses was complicated, and power even flowed both directions. In fact, enslaved cooks would on occasion intentionally mess up the bread or the biscuits or burn a dish so that it would reflect negatively on the mistress and destroy her reputation within her social circle. Yet as these enslaved cooks set menus, fixed food, and helped create a culture of food among the early generations of Americans, many of whom were not part of the elite circles eating from the major cuisines of Europe, it was increasingly black food that was being served on white plates. The same foods were being fixed in the kitchens of the plantation houses by these enslaved cooks and being prepared in their own quarters elsewhere. By the mid-19th century, the food and recipes of these enslaved cooks was making its way into recipes and cookbooks compiled by prominent white women within the South, who of course were taking the credit for foods that were not theirs. As these white cookbook authors appropriated the foods of the enslaved African Americans who had taught them to them, these uniquely African-American dishes nevertheless passed into the cultural memory and heritage of the South and the nation as a whole. But transforming the culinary landscape of a region was about more than just the recipes because these enslaved cooks also had the knowledge and know-how, either directly or from their mothers and grandmothers and others, of how to make the dishes of their homeland. They didn't just bring recipes, but techniques of how to cook, including the ways of frying poultry, like guinea fowl, which would have been a fried poultry dish served in Ghana, or making rich, hearty stews out of whatever meats were available. But in this world, I want us to kind of think for just a second about a few 
prominent black chefs and their contributions and the ways that these individuals have transformed the American food landscape today. James Hemings is one of those examples who will be America's first chef de cuisine. Hemings was an enslaved man on Thomas Jefferson's plantation at Monticello, the brother of Sally Hemings. Jefferson brought James with him to Paris in 1784 while Jefferson was serving as ambassador to France. And while there, James Hemings became the first American chef to train at a French culinary school. He soon became the chef de cuisine at the American embassy and, of course, was paid for his labor since slavery wasn't legal in France, even though Mr. Jefferson would not free him for many years and would bring him back to the States and continue to treat him as a slave. But in 1789, Hemings was brought back to the U.S. with Jefferson, where he became the chef for the now Secretary of State from 1790 to 1793. There, he took his French culinary background and wild audiences that included President Washington, European diplomats, high-ranking politicians, and visitors from around the world. One of his most well-known dishes was macaroni pie, his spin on the French dish pasta and cheese. But of course, this baked pasta dish featuring macaroni and cheese is, of course, the basis for the beloved American staple today. And it was James Hemings, the enslaved chef of Thomas Jefferson, who we credit with the creation of American macaroni and cheese. Another prominent black chef who will serve both presidents and transform the American landscape is the guy you see. So Hemings is on the left. On the right is a man by the name of Augustus Jackson. Augustus Jackson was a black chef who worked as a White House chef in the 1820s before moving back to his native Philadelphia. While in the White House, he learned the techniques of French ice cream, which was a favorite of First Lady Dolly Madison. And he really put ice cream on the, on the radar in the United States. But when he went back to Philadelphia in 1830, Jackson opened an ice cream shop and quickly became the leading ice cream maker in America. He would sell a quart of ice cream for $1.00 which sounds like nothing, right? But if we were to translate that $1 in 1830 to today, we're talking about $27 a quart ice cream. This was an expensive delicacy. But part of his renown was because he revolutionized the way ice cream was made. He was the first one to add salt to the ice to drop the freezing to raise the freezing temperature of the ice, and in doing so, drop the freezing temperature of the ice, yeah, and, and, and in doing so, quickly freeze the liquid inside as it churned. Today, we can call him the father of American ice cream because he is the man who creates the unique difference in American ice cream from its French predecessor of frozen custard. Or then we could come more modern and talk about this guy on the screen here. This is a man by the name of Thornton Prince. And in 1945, Thornton Prince opened a restaurant in Nashville, Tennessee called Prince's Barbecue Chicken Shack. Some of y'all know. At that barbecue chicken shack, Prince served up a unique spin on the beloved fried chicken of the South. Hot chicken. 
a dish that the Prince family will tell you was created by a spurned lover who was trying to spice up the womanizing Thornton Prince's fried chicken after he had been out a little too late with someone else. But instead of seeking revenge on him, Thornton Prince loved it. He asked for seconds, and in 1945, he began serving that hot chicken in his restaurant. While hot chicken has expanded to other iterations in many more restaurants, it was Thornton Prince and his revenge chicken that sparked the craze. But of course, the great tragedy of this is that the story of Thornton Prince has largely been erased from a world that now we just call Nashville hot chicken. It's ties back to a black chef in a segregated Nashville in 1945. It's been removed from the story. And instead, we just call it Nashville hot chicken, obscuring the legacy of these individuals. But here's the thing. Soul food, like so many other parts of American history, finds its roots through the winding intersection of African, European, and American cultures that came to be from slavery and 200 years of transatlantic exchange. But perhaps the greatest beauty of soul food is that its history is still evolving and ever-changing. Not unlike the recipe for Chef Alexis's drink in the calf. And some of y'all are in the calf with me and know my love for drink. Today, new generations of cooks are taking recipes and foods that have been handing da handed down to them and putting their own flair and spin on them. And so whether it be a soul food fusion restaurant in New York City, a hidden diner in rural Mississippi, a food truck in Charleston, or your mama's kitchen back home, soul food continues to transport us to back to places and memories and people one plate at a time. And I, for one, can't wait to taste where it's going to take us next. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, Dr. Pack. Hey, just a quick side note. Drank is actually just Kool-Aid, y'all. Okay? Just nothing else in it, but just Kool-Aid. So, yeah. 